Hugh Mackay has written 21 books, fiction and non-fiction, including The Good Life, The Art of Belonging and Australia Reimagined. He was also a weekly newspaper columnist for 25 years and in recognition of over 60 years of pioneering work in social research, he has been awarded honorary doctorates by Charles Sturt, Macquarie, New South Wales, Western Sydney and Wollongong Universities. The Inner Self was released at the same time as his latest fiction book, The Question of Love, and we'll be talking about that towards the end of this session. And in 2015, he was made an Officer of the Order of Australia. Hugh Mackay has been described, and this is my favourite, as Australia's greatest thinker. Please make him welcome. Hugh, we're going to start by talking about your non-fiction book, The Inner Self. Mm. What's it about and what prompted you to write it? It's about uh, that moment that comes to most people, uh, typically around their mid-40s, but sometimes later, when it suddenly dawns on them that there's more to me than all the superficial stuff about being a bloke, a father a husband, a writer, a researcher, having this particular sense of humour and this kind of voice and wearing these kind of clothes, all those things that we think of as comprising our social identity. The midlife crisis, uh, and it sometimes comes to people as late as 60 or 70 or even 80, but the midlife crisis is, at, at a deeper level, is usually about... Yeah, yeah, all that stuff about me is true and it's all fascinating, but actually that's not the most significant thing about me. There is more to me than my social identity. And that's often a liberating moment. Sometimes it's a deeply troubling moment because particularly in this era we are rather hung up on the idea of identity. It's the era of identity politics and everyone's obsessed about gender identity or ethnic identity or religious or political or some other uh, cultural uh, identity. And all of that's important, uh, but it's all about how I'm different, about how I'm unique, and the moment of insight what I think of as the moment of our personal enlightenment is when we realise that none of that is the most significant thing about us at all. And so that's why I wrote the book, to say all my working life as a social psychologist, I've been concerned about social interactions, how societies function well or badly, how relationships function well or badly, and how we build up a sense of our... Uh, social identity, because that is important and it is the stuff of social psychology. But I thought I didn't want to die without having acknowledged that there's actually more to it than that, uh, hence the inner self. Near the beginning of the book, you say, self-knowledge is not the key to a perfect life, but it is a necessary condition for an authentic and fulfilling one. Mm. What do you mean by that and why is it so important that we know ourselves? Well, since the ancient Greeks, of course, we've been enjoined by various thinkers and philosophers and mystics to know thyself. Mm. Uh, I think the answer to the question is very simple. 
uh, you're not an authentic person until you are in touch with the inner seed, not just the outer husk. Mm. We're both. Uh, but if we focus only on the husk and forget about the seed, we're not authentic. And because we're not complete in our understanding of ourselves. And if we're not complete, if we're inauthentic, we can't actually have authentic relationships. Mm. I mean, the beneficiary of undertaking the journey of self-discovery is not just me. The beneficiary is us. Mm. Uh, I'm now going to become the sort of person that people can relate to comfortably and authentically because I'll be more transparent, I'll be less hung up on questions of identity, I'll be, well, to get to the heart of the book, I'll be more human, more truly, authentically human. So you write about the difference, that's something you've started to talk about, between our personal identity, how we frame ourselves, and you explain that that's a social construct, and our inner self. Could you talk a little bit about this personal identity? What is it mm. and how does it differ from the essential self? What is the difference between mm. our private and our public faces? Mm. And various cultures have interesting words uh, to, to describe this, Nicole. I mean, in Japanese culture, in Chinese culture, in Iranian culture, there, there's language mm. uh, to, dis to distinguish between what I'm broadly calling the inner self and the, the outer self. So personal identity is the, the aspects of my life that, uh, that, that define me as separate. Personal identity is about my uniqueness and my independence. And one of the reasons I'm so deeply uneasy about the contemporary obsession with identity is that it is in fact an obsession with difference, mm. an obsession with uniqueness and separateness and independence. The inner self, I mean, this is, a, this is the great paradox of the book and it was the paradox that I hadn't fully grasped until I started working on the book. When we drill down and say, look, there is more to me than saying, I'm a woman, I'm a Buddhist, I'm an accountant, that's not that's not the whole me. In fact, I start the book with a little story about Emma Thompson, yes. um, one of my favourite actors, uh, who on the eve of her 60th birthday, it came a bit late to Emma, on the eve of her 60th birthday, uh, she decided that there was more to her than all the roles that society imposed on her. And she said, you can take these roles away, like masks, take them away from your face, mother, daughter, Sister, um, spouse, partner, actor, yeah. uh, all of that sort of stuff. And you're left with the question, who am I really? And Emma Tom this was in a, an interview with Time magazine. Emma Thompson said, I always thought that was a really boring question until now. And I suddenly realised it's the most riveting question of all. So here's the paradox of the self, Nicole. Um, when we drill down into the essential truth about who am I, we leave behind all this stuff about identity and, and the social facades that we build up, which are important. I'm not, I'm not denigrating that. Uh, they're important, particularly in the first half of life when we're establishing who we are. 
Um, but we drill down below all of that and get to our absolute essence and what do we find? Well, I believe that if we do drill right down, what we find, perhaps to our amazement, is that the self is not all about me at all. That what we discover in our essence is the common humanity that we share with everybody else. We discover that the real Nicole, the real Hugh, the essential us, has got nothing to do with gender, nothing to do with ethnicity, nothing to do with roles, responsibilities, any of that. It has to do with that we each belong to the same species and that once we understand that, I, I really do think this is the moment of enlightenment for us personally, once we discover that, it changes everything. It means now I'm responding to you as a fellow human and it could be that I really dislike you. It could be that I profoundly disagree with you about politics or religion or literature or art or anything and that doesn't matter. I will still need to treat you as what you are, which is a fellow human. And how is it appropriate to treat a fellow human? Answer, kindly, respectfully, tolerantly, generously. Not because we like each other. That's easy. You can be really kind to people you like. There's no virtue in that. Um, but this is a recognition of the fact that the characteristic of the human species is that we are social creatures. Uh, that like most of the other living species on planet Earth, we are herd animals. So are dolphins, so are whales, so are pigeons, uh, so are monkeys and so are humans. We are herd animals. And what that means is our responsibility to our species is not just to reproduce, our responsibility to our species is to promote the harmonious life of the herd. So let's talk about that common factor, and that's something that you write about in the book, that, that the one thing that we all have in common, you argue, is a capacity for love. But it's a particular kind of love. You talk about C.S. Lewis, the four types of love. Yes. What's the kind of love that you're talking about in this context? Yes, uh, when we use, love is a, is a dangerous word, isn't it? It's a heavily freighted word. I love chocolate, I love dogs, I love that movie, I love my wife, I love my kids most of the time, uh, I love my friends. Um, uh, but that's all about emotion. That's all about affection. And there is this extraordinary, essentially human quality. I think it's the most inspiring thing. I mean, just, just look around at all these beautiful people. The most inspiring thing about each of us is that we have exactly the same capacity as everyone else here and beyond, which is the capacity to show kindness and compassion towards people for whom we have no affection at all. And you say every single person That's has that human capacity. quality. Uh, a neuroscientist in Adelaide, Dr Fiona Kerr, uh, has done a lot of work on the, the brain, so of neuroscientists around the world, of course, and they identify something in the brain that we're all born with, which they call the cooperative centre. Now, the cooperative centre is the essential... A lot of humans will look at the way humans live and say, hang on, what about the competitive centre? Well, that's not natural. We learn to compete. 
What's natural for us is to cooperate. And in order to cooperate, in, in other words, in order to be fully human, we have to learn that cooperation depends on getting along with people that we don't necessarily like, that we don't necessarily agree with, that we don't share the same tastes and preferences with, but we get along with them because we know that our species can only thrive mm. if we promote social harmony. Mm. So I think, I think the reason I say that's the most inspiring thing about us is what a remarkable quality in our species that we will be kind to total strangers who we are never going to see again. Someone is crossing Rundle Mall and it's pouring with rain and their shopping bag just burst and we stop and help them pick it up and get them uh, over into a dry place and you know, wipe them down and everything. Uh, and it's been massively inconvenient. We got drenched to the skin. We're now running late for an appointment. But that's what humans do. That's so not something to celebrate as though it's a remarkable act of altruism. It's just what humans do. Here's a person in need. It is our natural inclination to help that person, not because they seem particularly deserving, but because they're in need. And you say that that's a product or that's a, um, related to species survival, that that's it. Could you just explain a little bit what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. Because we're herd animals, we can only survive in community. We need that desperately important sense of belonging for not just our mental health, but our physical health. It's obvious that we need it for our mental health. Look what's happened to people who feel socially isolated. And a lot of people were compulsorily socially isolated during the pandemic. In, in Victoria, on two prolonged occasions, uh, and briefly even on a third occasion, a lot of people experienced social isolation and struggled with it. We can talk a bit more about the good aspects of that, because I think the pandemic brought out a lot of wonderful things in us and reminded us of what it means to be human. But social isolation in general is extremely bad for us. Mm. We know that it's closely associated with the three epidemics that we and Western societies are currently in the grip of, an epidemic of anxiety, an epidemic of depression, and an epidemic of loneliness. 25% mm. of Australians, a study done by Swinburne Uni and the Australian Psychological Society just two or three years ago, 25%, this is pre-pandemic, 25% of Australians report feeling lonely, lonely, most of every week. Did I read somewhere recently about discussion of a minister for loneliness? In, in the UK. That? In the the UK. Under Theresa, Theresa May, mm. the UK appointed a minister for loneliness. It was a short-lived appointment. Mm. Well, <laughs> uh, maybe they it resigned. shouldn't have been. <laughs> well, well, it should have been a short-lived appointment. It's a ridiculous thing to say we need a minister for loneliness. <laughs> what we need is to knock on our neighbour's door and say, G'day, I'm yes. Hugh. Can, can I help you? Yeah. Um, uh, no, this is, this, is the, uh, this is the key to those epidemics. Social isolation. In our criminal justice system, the worst punishment we can think of is solitary confinement. Yeah. And that's because it is the worst punishment for a member of a social species. Um, but recent US research on social isolation and loneliness has shown that it's not just 
the obvious anxiety and depression that follow from being cut off from the herd. There are also physical ailments like inflammation, uh, hypertension, uh, sleep disturbance, um, increased um, cognitive decline, in increased uh, openness to addictions of all kinds. Uh, these are things that demonstrate how unhealthy it is for herd animals to be cut off from the herd. So what, what that's telling us is, if we want to be truly human, whether we like it or not, and there are people, I mean, I'm a bit of an isolate. You know, I, I don't mind. I drove here from Canberra, it's a long way, all on my own. It was wonderful. <laughs> uh, but I know that when I get here, I've got to reconnect. You know, that's, I'm a human. Uh, it's my responsibility. And even if I'm sometimes reluctant about it, I'm always enriched by it. You know, writers often say, oh, yeah, it's a solitary life and it's wonderful, but you couldn't write a decent book if you weren't constantly interacting with other human beings to know what it means to be human. Um, so the, the tragedy in our society and in societies like ours is that we are not always living as if we understand that our health depends upon the health of the communities that we belong to. That... that that humans thrive on engagement, on connection and on belonging. And you have this emphasis, as you say, in terms of this, the capacity for love. One of the ways that you describe that love is, is fellow feeling or compassion. So I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about what does it mean to live compassionately? Does that mean, for example, that we should always put other people's needs before our own. So say, for example, you're in a bad relationship, not a violent relationship, but a relationship that, for whatever reason, has run its course. Mm. Does compassion require you to stay in that relationship? Not at all. Um, I think it's, very, it's, a, it's a lovely question, Nicole, because it, it goes to the heart of a difficulty that a lot of people have with the idea that we are a compassionate species... Uh, oh, so does that mean we're doormats? You know, does that mean we're sort of bleeding hearts who'll, who'll just uh, do whatever anyone wants and so on? Not at all. Uh, I think this is a very tough, cool mental discipline, this idea of committing ourselves to being truly human, to being true to the inner self, means that I will let my humanity always prevail. I will always act kindly, compassionately, respectfully, tolerantly, even when I'm terminating a relationship, even when I'm a judge sentencing a criminal to 15 years in jail, uh, even when I'm uh, the warder who's looking after that prisoner who's got 15 years in jail, um, even when I'm an employer dismissing an employee, we can handle all our human interactions like true humans and not give way. I mean, we have these negative impulses. I, I, I use, can I digress for a moment? Please. I use a metaphor uh, in, in the opening chapter of the book which really informs everything else that I'm saying in the book. And the metaphor is, uh, think of yourself as being like your own personal solar system. Uh, uh, the planets are like all of your personal, unique qualities and characteristics, all the things we were talking about earlier that comprise our social identity. But they are all held together by the sun at the centre. 
and think of the sun at the centre as being your personal enlightenment, your personal source of light, uh, and, the, and the light at the centre of the sun, at the centre of our personal solar system, is love. In all its manifestations, but especially this peculiar uh, form of love that I'm calling compassionate love, which doesn't involve emotion or affection, but just involves the expression of our common humanity. Now, once we understand that it's like that, we understand that that sun, like any bright light, casts shadows. And, uh, and, and sometimes we want to hide in those shadows. Even the most loving person will sometimes give way to hate. Um, we, we, uh, in fact, in the, in the book, a large chapter of the book is, deals with 20 of the places where we hide from the demands of love on us. And all those hiding places are like shadows that only exist. I mean, we just need to remind ourselves when we have a little rush of, of loathing of someone, we have to remind ourselves that that's a shadow and it was cast by the bright light of love. We couldn't feel like that if we weren't in our essence loving people. That's what light does, it casts shadows. And sometimes we'll cower in those shadows. So what, what I'm saying is, yes, there will be plenty of negative stuff that we'll have to deal with in ourselves and in our encounters with other people, but the light shines on. And I think the, 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 the real message of the book is, even in the most difficult situation, even dealing with the most unpleasant person, even doing these brutal things like terminating a relationship, we can do that respectfully. We can do that kindly. But we, we, we can easily not do it. Uh, we can easily hide from the sun and become ven vengeful and angry and all those other jealous, uh, all those other shadowy negative things. But... We are capable of better than that. And it's only because we've understood what it means to be a human, sharing that humanity with every other single human, even the people we despise. So I think you make an interesting point that, as you say in, in answer to that previous question, that to live compassionately doesn't mean that you always have to sublimate your desires to somebody else's. But you say that sometimes we do have to sacrifice our needs to the needs of others. And the mm. example that you give is in response to climate change. Mm. That in that context, I might, I can't at the moment, but I might want to fly around the world three or four times a year. Mm. But that's not good for the climate. Mm. So perhaps in the interests of others, I need to curb or sublimate my own desires to some extent. Mm. Could you mm. talk a little bit about it in that context of yes. climate change? Yes. Um, absolutely. Uh, it's a, it's a, climate change is the most dramatic example. By the way, COVID is a very current mm -hmm. example in which Australians... I mean, I, I, I feel quite emotional about Australia on this subject. Um, I think we rose to this occasion magnificently. And how, how did that come about? It came about because... Sure, we had strong medical leadership on the subject and politicians took the medical advice seriously, unlike some other politicians in some other countries. But essentially, the message to us was, you owe it to each other mm. to make some sacrifices. You've got to make some personal sacrifices for this thing called the common good. We even heard politicians, a first in my lifetime, 
talking about the common good. Mm. <laughs> uh, well, I'm all in favour of that. Uh, make some pers personal sacrifices in, in the interest of the common good. Uh, now, climate change is a classic example. We, we'll say, all right, I now know that travelling in jet aircraft is a hugely damaging thing. I might sometimes have to do it, but I should think twice and, and do it as little as possible. Uh, Single-use plastics, now, now just banned in this magnificent state. Uh, step in the right direction. All these things. We're going to have to make sacrifices. Things will be a little less convenient. And we're not doing that for us. Mm. We're doing that for humanity. We're doing that for the future of the species and the future of the planet that we rely on for our survival. Um, we, we gave up... Uh, kissing each other in, in, uh, during the COVID. We, we, uh, or shaking we, hands. We, we gave up shaking hands. We stayed home when we would rather have gone to, the, gone to work, although some people have discovered they now prefer working from home. Um, but we did lots of things that were quite hard to do and did involve some personal sacrifice, but we did it not for any benefit for us, except mm. we were minimising our risk of mm. catching the virus. I understand that degree of self-interest. But essentially, we all did it. You know, some people have criticised us, say, oh, they're so obedient. Well, how wonderful. I mean, yeah. another way of saying that is they're so loving. And Selfless, I think that's... I, I, I would permit Australia a moment, just a fleeting moment, <laughs> of self-congratulation self yeah. on this subject, that we are capable... We've demonstrated that we are capable of acting with compassion mm. when it's really required. We've demonstrated this in the past. I mean, the generation now dead uh, who were adults through the Great Depression, they learned the same lesson uh, and they were shaped by it. That was the making of them. Uh, they learned about making sacrifices for the, for the common good, especially their immediate neighbours during those appalling years, much worse than the years of the epidemic, although there wasn't a the pandemic, there wasn't a, a life-threatening disease in the air. Um, but nevertheless, a lot of hardship, a lot of privation, very high sustained unemployment, etc. no social security net like there is now. Uh, and those people look back and say, you know, we were actually lucky to, be, to live through that. It was awful, but it shaped our values, it ordered our priorities. We're, we're capable of, I mean, that's, that's compassion in, in action. action. Hugh, can we go back for a moment to this concept of the disparity? What happens when there is too much of a disparity between your public identity, your social identity, and your the inner self? What are the consequences? So say you appear to be very happy and successful in the career that you've chosen, but in fact, inside, mm. you're terrified, you don't like it, you feel like it's the wrong thing for you. What are going to be the consequences mm. for that? Mm. Or what about another example I think you give in the book is you're praised for being a modest person, but you know that you're not a modest person. Mm. What are the consequences going to be mm. if you allow this, what you call a dissonance, to remain mm. between the public identity and the inner self? Mm. The almost inevitable consequence of going through life without lining up the inner and outer self is mental illness. Uh, I don't mean crippling mental illness, but uh, a heightened sense of anxiety, an increased risk of depression, um, and a sort of an aching feeling. In fact, there's a quote from Kierkegaard um, in, the, in the front of the book. Mm. 
which I'll just read, the deepest form of despair is to choose to be another than oneself. Mm. Uh, now, what he's saying is, if you're not, if you're not truly who you are, and, and I would add to that, truly human, then you're going to live with a kind of existential despair. You're, there's going to be a deep sense of unfulfillment arising from the inauthenticity of your portrayal to the world. And that's why I describe you know, the, inner, the, the, the midlife crisis for many people uh, as a breakthrough moment, as a, as a moment of absolute liberation when I'm able to say, I know what I'm really like, uh, and underneath all the pluses and minuses, I'm really human. Now, on the, on the way, when we're drilling down, on the way, we are going to encounter some ugly stuff, Nicole. I, mm. I, I'm yeah. sorry to bring you such bad news. Uh, we're all a mixture of mm. light and dark. You know, the, the light is there and the shadows are there. Uh, and many people are fearful of being their true selves mm. in case other people won't like them. And what's your answer to that? When, so when people say, I, I don't want to dig deep, I don't really want to look at who my inner self yeah. is, um, I might not like what I find. Yeah. What, what happens if I don't like what I find? What's yeah. your response yeah. to well, that? Well, I have two responses to that. One is, yes, you won't like what you find. That'll be true for all of us. But there will be lots of other stuff that you will like. Uh, we're all a mixture of attractive and unattractive, devils and angels, etc. Um, so that's all right. We, we can acknowledge that about ourselves. Keep drilling. Keep going. Ah. What's the now reward? I've, now, what? I've, I'm sorry. now I've yeah. Well, now I've come to the full understanding of the fact that to be like that is to be human. No human is perfect. No human is all sweetness and light. But to be human is to be loving. And once I've, once I've unchained myself, once I've liberated myself into that realisation, then even the ugly stuff, even the dark stuff, I can live with. I'm still... I'm trying to be authentically human, and that does include moments when I stumble. Mm. By the way, I, I would say on that subject, um, we don't... We're not good at being good all the time. Have you noticed that? <laughs> or even some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why in every day we need time out. That's why in every day we need time to ourselves for meditation or singing or reading or walking or swimming or whatever we do, uh, not as a self-indulgence, but to replenish our resources, to recharge the batteries for this very demanding thing that we are all stuck with. We're humans. We didn't ask to be born into the human species, but here we are. It's a, it's a responsibility we bear and it's enormously rewarding to live as a fully-fledged human, but it is also very demanding. So some, one of the things you mentioned there, singing, brings me back to something else I wanted to ask you about, yes. and that is one of the things you suggest that can help us to discover who our inner self is, is doing something creative or performing. You're saying that, you say that creative self-expression, let's say singing, maybe mm. reading, maybe acting, uh, can act like a shortcut to self-awareness. Why is that? Mm. It's a curious thing about the creative arts, uh, particularly when you are creating as opposed to... I mean, performing is wonderful too because you lose yourself in another character and that's often, if you're acting, for example, or singing, 
uh, and that's often enormously liberating to, to be like someone else, uh, to sing the words and the music written by someone else. It's even more liberating to write the music yourself or to write the book or the poem yourself um, or to improvise the portrayal of a character yourself. It does seem to have... It's like a shortcut to self-awareness, uh, which is why when people do go to an art class or a poetry class and start... Uh, using creative self-expression, they often look at stuff and say, where did that come from? Mm. Did I do that? How did, how did, mm. and, and what they're discovering is an aspect of themselves which is probably deep, probably close to their core, which is coming out in creativity because it's quite different from just doing your job and talking to people and so on. The creative act is a very special, different kind of act, but it's an unlocking um, who was the who was the person who talked about it being like the axe that breaks the frozen sea, uh, and that's what it is like. Um, to so so if you enjoy singing, sing, um, but occasionally write a song. Uh, don't, don't don't sing it to anyone else. <laughs> Just uh, um, but if you love poetry, occasionally write a poem. Uh, if you're dying to write a book. And most people who come to Writers' Week have a book inside them. Get on with it. Uh, it doesn't matter if you never finish it. It doesn't matter if no one reads it. The writing act is an act of liberation. You'll be amazed at how some deep truths about yourself emerge in the creative process. I've heard some writers say before, the reason I write is to find out what I think. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. let's, Hugh, let's move now to talk about something that you devote quite a large part of the book to, and that's what you call hiding places. Mm. So you say there are many things that distract us from our inner life and they prevent us from connecting to our inner selves. You named 20. Regrettably, we don't have time to go through all of them. I'm just mm. going to select a few. But to give mm. you a flavour for what Hugh writes about, some of the ones he talks about are addiction, busyness, guilt, shame, perfectionism, work, materialism. The two that I want to have a look at are ambition and fatalism. So let's look at ambition first of all. And I think this section is very interesting, the way that you write it. You argue, correctly it seems to me, that there are two kinds of ambition. Mm. And one is good and one is not so good. Mm. What are they and when does ambition become a hiding place that stops us from discovering who we really are? Yes, thanks, Nicole. Yes, one, one form of ambition is in the light and the other form of ambition is in the shadow cast by the light. Good ambition, let's just call them good and bad. Uh, good ambition is ambition for others. And by the way, when I say that, I realise I didn't fully answer your previous question about that because, yes, sometimes it is all about sacrificing ourselves for others. And here's a good example. The best ambition is the ambition to make the world a better place. Mm. And that's going to involve often sacrificing our own self-interest to the greater good uh, the person who wants to be Prime Minister in order to eradicate poverty mm. or the person who wants to become Prime Minister in order to promote gender equality mm. or the person who wants to um, become Prime Minister in order to reform the education system or the aged care system or something else... That's good ambition. Good ambition. Yeah. That's all about... I want to be in a position of power and influence in order to solve these mm. societal problems. What's an example of bad ambition? But what about the person who says, I want to be Prime Minister? 
full stop, uh, which many prime ministers mm. have admitted. I wanted to be prime minister ever since I was 10 years old. Oh, yeah? Did you want to eradicate mm. poverty? Uh, <laughs> did you want to promote gender equality? Did you want to change it? Did you want to make the world a better place? I wanted to be prime minister. Now, what's that about? That's about self-aggrandisement. Yeah. That's, that's a vanity project. Uh, I want to be the boss. Why do you want to be the boss? Well, I've worked in this factory for 25 years and I can see a lot of ways that we could improve the processes. We could make this a better human environment. We could make this a place that people love coming to for their work. That's why I want to be the boss. Tick. Uh, I want to be the boss. Why do you want to be the boss? Well, I've worked here for 25 years. I think I've earned it. I think I'm, you know, I wouldn't mind the, the salary the boss gets paid and I think I'm entitled to that kind of status after all these years. Bad. Let's talk now about fatalism. Mm. I think it's best summed up. I think you have this at the beginning of the chapter by that expression, which I used to hate, but I find myself using more and more often in this pandemic, which is, it is what it is. Does anyone else <laughs> hate that expression? Yeah. It is what it is. What does that even mean? Anyway, I found myself using it more in the last year. What are the potential risks of a passive acceptance of your fate? It is what it is, uh, as you say, it's become uh, a kind of a cliche, is, is replaced, she'll be right, uh, because we know she won't necessarily be right, uh, so now we, we, we embrace it is what it is. Yes, I hate that expression, uh, except in circumstances where people have accepted some aspect of their fate, like a diagnosis mm. of a terminal illness, uh, Living during a pandemic. And, and they're saying, well, it is what it is. In other words, I have to adapt to this. However, uh, the reason it's become a hiding place is many people are abdicating their responsibility to make the world a better place, abdicating the opportunity to engage with the street, with the apartment block, with the neighbourhood, in order to improve the quality of the life of that mini-environment, of that micro-community, uh, and, and abdicated their responsibility to promote social harmony by just saying it is what it is. It's, it's the worst kind of... I mean, fatalism, mm. as a general rule, is a very, very negative and I think socially destructive philosophy, mm. like nihilism. Mm. Uh, where does that get us? Mm. It's like the abandonment of hope. Mm. But actually, if we cling to our humanity, we don't give way to fatalism. We say... There's a whole lot wrong and I could make it better, mm. step by step. Yes, there's a problem of social isolation in our society and I know some people in our street who probably are socially isolated. Well, actually, I'm a neighbour. That's my responsibility. Not, yeah, some people are lonely. It is what it is. Hugh, I wish, as I say, I wish we could go through all of the 20 hiding places that Hugh writes about so well. But I want to just leap at this point to Hugh's fiction book, The Question of Love, in which you explore some of the themes that you write about in the non-fiction book. So this is a book fundamentally about a marriage between, it appears on the surface when we first read about it to be a pretty happy marriage. There's Richard who's a successful architect. He's got a younger wife, Freya, who's a successful musician. They live in a lovely house. Things seem to be going pretty well for them. There's something wrong with their marriage. Mm. What is it? Mm. Uh, well, um, the reason why that book came out on the same day as The Inner Self was, was written 
over preceding four years, and it was finished about a year before the Inner Self, but my publisher at Pan Macmillan, Ingrid Olson, um, said, actually, this novel is really, a, it's like a case study of the themes you're writing about in the Inner Self. Let's keep them as companion volumes. We'll publish them literally on the same day, which they did. Um, so the answer to the question is they're hiding from themselves and each other. And each other, yeah. Uh, there is a lack of authenticity. They love each other. They want the marriage. They, they, Freya, in particular, regularly with one of her sisters, contemplates whether they're going to go on with their respective marriages. They meet once uh, a week and say, would you leave him this week? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's how they monitor their relationships. That's right. Uh, but they're going on. And, the, and there is a deep sense of connection and concern and love, um, but still a lack of authenticity in the relationship and the tensions which gradually unfold uh, as the book proceeds. And it's, and it's written... Uh, the structure of the book is a bit weird. It's taking the musical themes and variations structure, like jazz improvisation. So as, as we go on every second chapter begins in the same way and but leads off into other directions, variations on the theme. So we gradually peel away the layers of the onion and get to the core of their marriage. Uh, and, and what we find is inauth inauthenticity. They are not yet... I mean, there are, there are moments when it's blindingly obvious to the reader that Freya is hiding from some aspects of herself and so is Richard. And I think as we, as we move through the book, we become more sympathetic to both of them. Perhaps Richard's the one with more problems and we become... Perhaps, I, in writing him, I became very sympathetic to <laughs> Richard by the end. He took, his life took some surprising turns. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's the answer. It's a, it's a case study in how a marriage doesn't reach its true fulfilment as long as either, or in this case both, partners are stopping short of complete authenticity. Let's come back to something that you touched on earlier. This is going to be my last question, by the way. Um, you've heard enough from me. So any of you that would like to take the wonderful opportunity to ask the wonderful Hugh Mackay some questions, please, if you'd like to start to form a line down that central aisle. I wanted to ask you about the pandemic. Mm. We talked about it a little bit earlier. but. I, what I want to ask you about is the impact of the pandemic on our behaviour. Mm. Early on, I think it was late March last year, 2020, so very early days, you wrote a piece in which you said the following. Pandemics are such a potent sign of our interconnectedness and interdependency. They remind us that sustainable communities depend on a steady supply of compassion to nurture them. Longer term, major disruptions like this one tend to bring out the best in us. So we are entitled to hope for some overdue corrections to our mad materialism and our unhealthy individualism. That was in March, almost a year ago. Have those hopes been realised? Uh, yes, they are being realised. Um, I'm very optimistic at this moment. In fact, my next book, um, which will be out in May... Uh, is called The Kindness Revolution. Mm. Uh, and it's taking that, what you've just said, really, as the starting point. We've been through this. We've learned some deep lessons about ourselves and each other. 
and about how societies can work well un under difficult conditions or work badly under difficult conditions, are we prepared to take those lessons and apply them more widely? Are we going to be a pathetic society that needs a catastrophe to make us kind and loving and compassionate towards each other, or are we going to adopt that as a characteristically Australian way of life? Could we become known as a loving country, not just a lucky country? Hugh, what have you seen that gives you confidence in our innate kindness? Our, our response to the pandemic. In what sense? Uh, our, our, uh, our willingness to play by the rules, not just play by the rules, not just wear masks, keep our distance, etc., but the spontaneous outbursts of neighbourliness, I just keep hearing mm. hundreds, um, and I'm sure everyone can give us examples of this, spontaneous outbursts of neighbourliness that would not have happened if we hadn't had the pandemic. Just one tiny little example I'll tell you quickly. I was, early in the pandemic, I was doing a webinar a word that I wish had been strangled <laughs> at birth. Uh, but I was doing a webinar when I was in a chat room uh, with, two young, <laughs> yes, with two young blokes, both, I'd say, in their early 30s, uh, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney. Uh, they'd both just moved into new flats, new premises, dwellings, uh, just before the lockdown. Uh, and... Uh, each of them told the same story. They had both sort of thought, well, I don't know anyone, and they, they wrote little notes, put a note in the, in the letterbox of the neighbours in their street, in one case apartment block, which simply said, I'm new to the district, uh, I'm happy to help if you need anything, oh. any shopping, or uh, you need someone to make up, you know, take a prescription to the chemist, here's my phone number, give us a buzz. Now, I don't think either of those young blokes, though obviously really lovely young blokes, mm. but I don't think either of them would have done that... A year ago. ...if it hadn't Two been for ago. the pandemic. Yeah. And I think, you know, in, my, in the apartment um, complex that I live in, we had a balcony choir. Uh, well, we wouldn't have had a balcony choir if we hadn't been confined to barracks. Yeah. So there were lots of signs of, ah... Now we're in this situation, Community. what we really need is to nurture this neighbourhood mm -hmm. and to be alert to the fact that in this neighbourhood there are probably people who were always lonely but we didn't know. Mm. We've now all experienced a little bit of social isolation. What about the people who are mm. always socially isolated? Mm. I think uh, there's, a, there's a well of compassion about that which would not have occurred without the pandemic. Let's start hearing from you now. Yes, first question. Yeah, hi, Hugh. Thank you. Um, interested in your point about um, the humanity being our core, but I think, too, with COVID, and I wonder what your thoughts are, uh, in that I think people have also gone the opposite way and become more insular, but also um, I'm finding, I think, noticing people uh, uh, taking escape in their own groups and things like that, and in some circumstances ghosting other people in that they, you know, deciding that they'll just cut them off and things like that. Is, have you noticed anything mm. about that or do you have any thoughts on that sort of reaction, not yes. just to COVID, but even over the last 10, 15 years? Yes. Yes, thank you. Um, 
Uh, I certainly do. And I'm, I'm guilty, of course, in some of what I said earlier of the social researcher's disease, which is to generalise. Uh, of course, when I'm talking about all the positive aspects of COVID, there were negative aspects and not everyone behaved well. Some people behaved really badly. Uh, and some people have used it as an opportunity to disengage, not engage. But I think in that case, we are talking about a very small number of exceptions. Now, when you're talking about ghosting and, and trolling and other uh, ugly stuff that's now cropping up, particularly in social media, I think that is a different kind of problem. That is a problem that arises when we trade this kind of personal interaction with eye contact and touching and uh, smiling and nodding and all the complexity and, and, um, and nuance of interpersonal face-to-face -face contact. When we trade that for online contact too much, I mean, we all trade a bit, but when we do it too much, it actually becomes uh, a threat to our humanity because it's not human interaction. It's digital connection, it's data transfer. Now, it gets pretty close on Zoom to something that feels a bit like person-to-person uh, -person interaction, but of course, if you spend an hour uh, at a, on a, in a Zoom conversation or meeting, uh, at the end of it, you're exhausted, much more than you would be if you'd had an actual meeting, and that's because it's a very odd kind of thing to do, and it just reminds us of how far short of actual personal human interaction information technology falls. But if we spend too much... I mean, the, the, the age group in Australia now, pre-pandemic, the age group reporting the highest level of loneliness is the 18 to 25 age group who are the most highly connected via social media. So mm. psychologists are now talking about connected but lonely. Right. Uh, and, of course, that has all the mental health hazards that I was speaking about to Nicole. So that's, that's very much a social media phenomenon, I think, rather than a pandemic problem, but exacerbated, of course, by the pandemic because so many people just came to rely totally on social media because they couldn't have face-to-face -face contact. Next question. Donald Trump. Have you ever done an analysis of him? And if so, did you find a skerrick of anything that might qualify him as a human being? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, look, I'm, I'm like everyone else in the, I was going to say in the room, uh, we're not in a room, in this space. Uh, yes, let us remind ourselves that Donald Trump is a human being. Donald Trump could not possibly have chosen to be like Donald Trump. In fact, I had this conversation with my youngest granddaughter quite recently when she was railing about Donald Trump. She's 10. Uh, <laughs> She's uh, and I said, no one would choose to be like that, but he grew up in a certain kind of family and we know a little bit about that and he had a certain kind of father and we know a little bit about that and he, he led a certain kind of life and had certain kinds of people who influenced him and he became like this. And it's not Donald Trump's fault that he became president of the US. We know who to blame. Uh, and even after we'd seen him being a narcissist, even after we'd seen him being lacking empathy 
for what's now half a million Americans uh, who've died as a result of COVID. Never a word of empathy or sympathy about that. Even after all the things that we've seen about him, 70 million Americans voted for him in the last election. So we won't blame him, but we will... It's a, it's a struggle. I mean, I had this struggle... I'm going to reveal something about my personal politics, I suppose, but I had this struggle for a while with Tony Abbott. I had to keep, keep saying to myself, Tony Abbott, who I've met a few times, and he's a really nice bloke. <laughs> it's incredibly annoying that he's such a nice person uh, because I disagreed so strongly with his performance as Prime Minister. But I had to remind myself that he's a human, uh, that he's the product of his upbringing as I am the product of mine, and we are in this thing together and I can disagree profoundly with him and still behave kindly and compassionately and respectfully towards him when we meet and talk about matters about which we disagree entirely. Next don't, question. Don't, don't, don't fall for the trap of monsterising someone so that you can pretend they're not human. Next question. <laughs> Hugh, I was just wondering, um, you've spoken about the core of ourselves, knowing ourselves truly, being kind, the, the humanity that we need to progress further. How does that interrelate with our connection with nature, with the connection of animals, because we don't show respect or kindness in those areas apart from our domestic animals? Mm. So if, to move forward, how would you see that? Mm. Yes, thank you for that. It's a wonderful question and I agree absolutely with the premise. When I'm talking about our, our need as a species to show kindness and respect, consideration, etc., towards other members of the species. We're part of more than a species. We're part of an ecosystem. Uh, we're part of a, a life on a planet. We're part of a planet in a solar system in the, com in the cosmos. And we have to respond to all of that in the same way. Respect towards uh, all other forms of life, animate and inanimate, uh, is, is part of the deal. Uh, we can't escape that either. Um, by the way, I recently discovered a statistic that I can't help sharing with you in, in, in the light of that question. The population of Australia, as we know, is 25 million humans. The pet population of Australia is 29 million. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you very much for your wonderful and wise talk. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. And uh, it's very inspirational. But I'm asking you, uh, despite all the wonderful signs of kindness during the pandemic, uh, in our time, the social code, education, political behaviour is very far removed from the inner self. How can you see hope and development towards a more humane climate in mm. our society? Yes, thank you for that. Another, all these questions, this is, this is classic Adelaide Writers Week, isn't it? <laughs> these are the sort of questions you get in Adelaide. You don't get these questions in other places. Uh, thank you for that. And look, part of the answer, I mean, one of my sources of hope is you. You're, you're thinking about this and asking a question like that. And that gives me an enormous amount of hope because I know you're not going to go home back to your street or your apartment or wherever it is and ignore everyone else. I know you've, you've taken this idea on board probably 50 years ago. You took this idea on board and it influenced your life. That's what gives me hope. But I, but I, so I think each of us has to acknowledge that we can have, we can probably have a direct influence 
on a hundred other people, each of whom can have a direct influence on another hundred, etc. The ripples from kindness keep... It's a contagious kind of thing. When someone behaves well, we know it's admirable, we're more likely to emulate. But I do think... You mentioned education. I do think there is scope for an absolute revolution in our approach to education. Far more emphasis on cooperation, far less emphasis on competition, uh, far more emphasis on the social skills for building social harmony and so on. And, I, and I'm optimistic because I know a lot of people now think that. Uh, Jeff Gallup, the former Premier of Western Australia, has just released a report um, in, um, in Sydney for, uh, about reforming the teaching profession. Uh, now, what, what's implied in your question is a very big part of what that report is about. Uh, we should, of course, be paying teachers far more than we're paying them and training them very differently. <laughs> uh, they are... There's a lot of teachers in the audience. So. <laughs> they are the profession I admire above all others, and I think it is uh, primary teachers more than any, but secondary as well, uh, I admire more than any other profession, and the fact that we pay them as we pay them is a national scandal. And the training of teachers, the nurture of young teachers as a high burnout factor, it's a very demanding profession. They need a lot of mentoring. They need an apprentice system and so on. Jeff Gallup's report goes into all of that. Um, I, I think there will be uh, a revolution in our approach to the training of teachers and, and the structure of our education system. Probably not in my lifetime, but soon after. I think we have time for one last question, I'm sorry. How would you suggest that, should I be stuck in the room with a Trump supporter, diehard Trump supporter, would it be best not to talk politics? Or if he brings it up, or she, how would you suggest yeah. that I channel my inner humanity yeah. and <laughs> find the common ground? Yeah. Thank you, because there, of course there is, there, there, are, there are miles of common ground. This is one thing you disagree about, and, and we often describe people's politics as the key to their worldview, but it's not the key to their worldview, it's part of their worldview. Uh, there's more to all of us than our political convictions, luckily, or we'd all be at each other's throats. Um, no, I, I, yes, avoid, I mean, I have a, I have a neighbour, a, a couple, in the apartment block where I've lived for the last four years. Shortly after we moved in, uh, we invited all the neighbours in for a drink, uh, and I quickly realised that this particular couple were very, very right-wing. Uh, I was left in no doubt when the wife said to me, fixing me with a very sincere look, saying, I think Peter Dutton is our only hope. Uh, and I wasn't sure quite what she meant. <laughs> Uh, but I offered her another drink. Uh, now, all that means is I know that that's a subject that's not worth discussing. And uh, she did say to me on a subsequent occasion, I'm surprised how reluctant Australians are... She's from Chile. I'm surprised how reluctant Australians are to talk politics. <laughs> I could have explained to her why they're reluctant yeah. to talk politics with her. If that's her opening uh, line, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but no, look, we can avoid the subject or we can respectfully say, look, I know you feel like that and I know there are millions of people who feel... But I just need to let you know I don't feel like that. 
uh, her husband once said to me, I hope you don't watch the ABC. <laughs> And I, and I said to him, look, I'm, I'm sorry, Seth, I do watch the ABC mm. all the time. No, 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 you've got to watch Sky News. Mm. So, I mean, we're perfectly good friends. They're both ill at the moment and I'm walking their dog. So that's all right. When I walk the dog, <laughs> I don't talk politics. Or... <laughs> so stay kind. Hugh, that's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you to all of you for being here today, but most especially thank you to Hugh Mackay, Australia's greatest thinkers, certainly one of our greatest thinkers without a doubt. It's been an absolute privilege to talk to you, Hugh. Thank you. And Hugh will be outside the book tent signing books now. So go and line up and get yourself a copy of both if you don't have them already. Thank you very much. Thank you.